In our latest addition to our Lightshed Live series, we're peeling the onion a bit more on IoT. This time, an IoT end-to-end solutions provider. This is a recurring revenue business targeted at what is really a complex solution for many large enterprise customers. In this case, Core Wireless and its CEO, Romel Bale, go through what the market opportunity is for the company and the changes that they've started to implement to further benefit from more services that their customers want. You can actually buy this in the public markets today through a Cerberus Telecom Acquisition Corp, ticker CTAC, the SPAC that is in the process of combining with this company, targeting a about a $900 million market cap valuation for a company that's generating, again, recurrent revenue and free cash flow. So without further ado, let's go to my chat with Romel. I want to try and you know, make this a high level, um, not get too deep like some of my <laughs> Light Shed Lives or premium access stuff does tend to get, um, just to give everyone a sense of kind of how Core fits into the marketplace. So um, Romel Bale from um, Core is is joining us. As many of you know, they're in the process of a SPAC that I think the, the timing on that is, is um, Q3 that will make this available to the public markets, hopefully, um, in the third quarter. Um, and is available right now. Um, the it's it's they are an end-to-end IoT solution provider. But again, the interest is we hear about five G, and how you know there's obviously people running speed tests <laughs> and showing how five G increases download speeds. But the other benefit of five G is the number of of incremental connections that it makes. But we all know that there's a lot of different ways to connect, whether it's a satellite, unlicensed spectrum. Operators are going to vary around the world, whether it's LTE or, or um, 5G or, or 2G or 3G. What, what's fascinating is you have um, big companies like Cisco or whatever sizing this market um, in, in the billions, you know, tens of billions of dollars. Um, and I think if we can send data afterwards that that core provides in in, in terms of some of that stuff but um you know but th- but these are big numbers and um Romo, why don't you talk to us about kind of what iot means to you as opposed to maybe what we've heard from at&t in terms of car connectivity or on the flip side like tracking a pallet that's that's traveling around the world yeah now, great, Walton. First of all, thanks for having me. Uh, look, let's get right into the sort of the excitement in the market, right? So first of all, the Internet of Things um, is is literally just anything that is connected and hanging off of the Internet, right? And our numbers across all of the various analysts and models that we obviously follow with great interest, by the way, and triage ourselves, is that there will be uh, 75 billion IoT devices hanging off the internet by 2030. That's a decade from now. That's compared why I to how many compared to how many today? Compared to 12 billion at the end of 2020. But if you went and back five, other, but if you went back five years ago, what yeah. were they saying? Where 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 were we supposed to be in 2020 <laughs> in terms That's of the indeed. number of devices? That, that is a key question. And by the way, a key repeating theme as we go through today, because uh, we were supposed to be at 20. Uh, and in fact, some analysts even had bigger numbers. Um, we were more cautious. Actually, we, we ended up right around or maybe even a little better than where Core thought we would end up three or four years ago. And the, and the primary reason for this seeming disconnect of why we're not coming out of the hype phase of IoT 
has everything to do with the complexities of, of deploying an end-to-end -end IoT solution. Uh, and you just pointed at one yourself. When you just went through 2G and 3G and 4G and 5G and LPWA and this and satellite and that, you, the, the, the sheer gobbledygook of terminology that comes out at you if you're a business person trying to say, okay, how will I digitally transform my business out to the edge? That complexity is what's been holding IoT back. I also feel like we went through this phase where some of us heard of companies like Sigfox or yeah. AT&T um, had made a push. I think they bought Jasper at some point during this process and then ended up selling it for $1.4 billion uh, to Cisco. Um, there's carriers around the world. Obviously, a solution that Sigfox might provide me in the U.S. doesn't help me in some other market where they might not have network coverage. So was it this complexity? You think the primary issue of, of what held back this ability to get to 20 and then ultimately to 75 and then and then what is going to what is the key factor other than core <laughs> like what is the macro factor obviously the core's capabilities that can help us or help the industry get to these much larger numbers yeah so two or three different themes there and let me hit each and we'll try to keep it brief like you said and, and i'll let you guide me on whether more details is is necessary or not so the first point i just want to talk about is 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 very interesting that you remember the jasper transaction uh, whatever that number was, it was 1.3 or 1.4. It was 20x revenue. Is yep. is not as someone who saw the paper. Don't take that as gospel. Just as what the the industry might might say about it. Now, uh, Jasper started every bit like Corded. Actually, it, it it was you know a little M2M front end IoT early days connectivity type provider that decided to make a big bet on being more of a a, a software platform to enable carriers and other providers to enter the IoT market themselves, serve IoT customers themselves, which of course, you know, the traditional MNO did not grow up with that kind of a platform, right? And um, by the way, we did that as well. We, we had several MNOs that were using our platform to, to run their uh, businesses, including uh, one of the big three here in the US, uh, interestingly. But but just to make the point, so AT&T used the, uh, the Jasper platform now called Control Center, I don't think they ever owned the company. They might have had some ownership stake in it, actually, as, as I think about it. And then, yes, they the the it was now wholly owned by uh, Cisco under the under the control center bank. So that's one part of what you asked. It just shows, I think, you know, the the everybody can see that the opportunity is there. Hence the twenty x revenue number on it. Right? Sure. <laughs> so, okay. So now, shall we move to the next part? You talked about Sigfox. Should I hit that next? Yeah, just in general, like, you know, it, it yeah. seems like it's been a fragmented market and maybe that's yeah. part of the reason why we haven't hit 20. So is it going to remain fragmented or is, I mean, is connectivity seems like, you know, one part of your business. It's obviously 75% yeah. of revenue now. Yeah, I think you have 44 carrier partners. Yeah, How material is that? Can that be replicated? And, you know, is that a differentiating factor going forward? Or do you need to bring more to the enterprise customer to make it easier for them to deploy um, these IoT services? Yeah. So let me come at the question this way. Let's come at the complexity point first, and then we'll talk about core and why we feel very strongly that we have uh, a, a real competitive mode um, and, and also why, you know, just our competitive positioning just makes us stand apart, we believe, in the industry. But let's start with the complexity first so folks can follow along, right? So, look, when it comes to connecting devices, so we just talked about 75 billion devices by 2030, right? Yep. So roughly half of those, okay, now I could be more precise than that, but just for numbers sake, and we all know that 75 may end up being 70 or 80 or some other number anyway, it's an estimate. 
Um, but roughly half of those 75 million devices will be connected by short-range connectivity protocols. The other half will be long-range. So short-range is Wi-Fi or Zigbee or Bluetooth, right? The things that sometimes are 8 and 10 and 12 feet uh, in range, and that's it, like, like the BLE. Um, you don't typically charge by the megabyte there or by per usage there in short range. In the long range, you do charge by the megabyte. The consumer or the business customer pays uh, by usage, typically an increasing rate as the bandwidth increases, as the amount of data that you are using increases. And that is, as you correctly said before, either satellite uh, or uh, licensed cellular, which is where all of the 4G, 5G excitement is, and then unlicensed cellular, one example of which is Sigfox. Another example that your, your listeners might, might relate to is LoRa, right? Those are unlicensed cellular plays, okay? Now, we've already talked about a half dozen or eight, and I'm not even trying to be complex, right? Yep. When you get within each of these things now, there's, there's more complexity. And so depending on your use case, heaven forbid you got to track that container you mentioned earlier, uh, from wherever it got loaded up to a truck of some sort, maybe it goes via rail to a port, then gets on a ship. There's no cell towers out in the ocean. Now right. I suddenly need, if I want to track that thing, I need satellite and then back again the other side. I know, by the way, when the goods are inside the warehouse, I need an indoor type, right? Either RTLS or, or so RFID. Enterprise ITS. customers just hiring large IT staffs and piecemealing this stuff together? There, there, there is literally no choice, right? Is that that's why the the twenty uh, isn't twenty; it's only twelve. Is because by the time you piece all the, I mean, a, a venerable consulting firm had a great stat out there. Right when I was joining Core, I saw this. They said you need an average of eighteen partners to launch one end-to-end solution, right? I mean, just think about that. It's just mind-boggling. 18 partners and how many internal people to manage the 18 exactly. partners. Well, exactly. And, and, and that's before you get to how many countries are you shipping to and are you trying to connect your products to. Right? My, my favorite little example that I've been giving in these, um, these pipe investor type meetings, just because it's easy to get people's brains around, is if you're a washing machine manufacturer, increasingly it's got to be a connected washing machine for you to be competitive, uh, for the consumer to get the experience they want. And by the way, for you to get the right telematics and the right data off of there and improve your product and reduce your warranty costs and all the reasons why we did telematics, why telematics was the first real IoT use case, right? So you say, okay, so I'm going to manufacture washing machines, put them in 50 countries, that's where I ship to, and it's got to connect everywhere you go. The complexity just explodes, right? Because you've now got between 100 and 150 individual carrier contracts you need. Because let's say you need two to three carriers per country, right? AT&T, T-Mobile. And integrating that with your cloud provider and whatever other exactly. analytics. Exactly. That's 150, 125 platforms to log into. That's 125 bills. So you need small armies of lawyers and contract managers and, and, and people watching the contract, you know, and the bills. So and, and, and the concept then of, of IoT, which is basically creating more data inputs to analyze on the cloud platforms, like where are Amazon and Microsoft um, in these endeavors? Uh, you know, do they have their version of core that are going to their customers? Or are they just relying, <clears throat> excuse me, or are they just assuming that their enterprise customers are going to find their, you know, the, someone to help them with this and then just connect in, you know, connect back into the cloud? Yeah. Look, I can't speak with any authority to their strategic plans for the future, but what we have heard certainly directly from them, because we work with them all the time, uh, is that they are not um, 
uh, sort of coming into this segment of the business, uh, not least because they don't want to appear competitive to these large MNOs, right? I mean, the last time I was at Microsoft was not that far long or, or long after they announced uh, like a $2 billion enterprise deal with AT&T, right. something like that. Right? So, so they don't want to be viewed as, as competitive with them. Equally, they know it's complex down here, right? I mean, it, this last mile of making that device work, get the data off there across all of those kinds of technologies, make it seamless, bring it translated across all of these protocols, get it to one screen, one bill. We've been building this for 20 years with all of the integration that's gone into it. This isn't easy to, to, to replicate in the first place. Not that somebody like AWS couldn't get after that if they really wanted to, but what they've said so far is highly complimentary, work with us on X and Y and Z. And I could literally, I could list off a half dozen projects we've got going on with cloud providers right now doing just that, helping them to do what they eventually want to do, which is get data off the devices. And like you said, run it on their compute and storage back on the cloud. What are the, so where does the enterprise customer turn to then? I mean, if the cloud guys on one end aren't helping them and, and the individual silos of connectivity partners can't help them, I mean, what are, I guess, in this case, what is your competitor in terms of putting all these pieces together? Yeah, and so this is where I'd like to take a, a minute to just talk about Core, right? Because we haven't really said what is Core's mission in life. And I would say that, Yes, and we core are and core three O, which is the new strategy that yeah, you're exactly. embarking upon as exactly. of twenty twenty, exactly. right? Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And so, as you said, it's it's a it's a pure play IoT company first and foremost, right? And fundamentally, what we say we do, right? So, the what we do is deploy, manage, and scale. Now, that sounds awfully simple, but it's to help our customers deploy successfully, manage their deployment seamlessly, and therefore confidently and securely scale. It has been ridiculously hard to do those things in the past. A different statistic, another favorite of mine, is actually from Cisco, the company you mentioned about Jasper. They uh, had a study that said almost two-thirds of all IoT prototypes and proof of concept stall or fail in some form or the other, right? These are the things that drove us at core to say, wait a second, right? We, we serve 3,600 customers today. We've served over 10,000 customers' life today. We've sort of, right, we've, we know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. And surely if we can bottle up that knowledge and become that trusted advisor to help navigate this ecosystem, to help orchestrate across all of this complexity and make it easy for you to adopt IoT as an enterprise, surely there's a play there. And that's Core 3.0 in a nutshell. So that what we do is deploy, manage, scale. How we do it is connectivity solutions analytics all three of those pieces being built out. So when you said connectivity is 75%, it was 100% of revenue three years ago. It's down to 74 at the end of 2020 and probably headed at 50-50, uh, Walt, is, is the magnitude of the opportunity. On the and, and is the reason for that because the, the customers are, are don't have the resources as maybe the early adopters in IoT did, where, where someone might come to you only for connectivity and now they need you to say like, look, and maybe even large customers, I don't want to deal with all this bullshit. Like you guys take on more of what we have to do. Yeah, so here, here's what I would say. I would say that uh, part of that staying in hype land for too long problem that you've, I think, very astutely identified, uh, part of that problem was that the large enterprises were actually slow to go adopt IoT and, and true global deployments have largely been missing from the last 10 years, but are largely now getting ready to come out the next 10 years. That's what's gonna drive these volumes from, from 12 to 75. So, so, the, so the very interestingly, 
while these are enterprises in their own rights, they're relatively small enterprise customers that we've sort of grown up with, right? Um, They were entrepreneurial, they were agile, they were built to purpose, they were delivering one IoT solution in one segment or one use case. They got really good at this stuff. The typical enterprise world started by, and I you know, don't mean to be um, sort of negative in any way about this. It's just a reality. We, most enterprises said, let's take a gal from sales and a guy from product management and the obligatory IT person, let's put them in a department and sort of challenge them with that question of what is IoT going to mean for us, <laughs> right? And these poor three buggers went out, maybe fell in love with some device that probably wasn't at all appropriate for what they thought they wanted it to do. Right had 300 conversations out there across this fragmented ecosystem. And of course the proof support concept failed and so forth. So the first thing we do now, when a new customer, certainly a large enterprise comes at us, is we start them off with a reality check of a seven step process. We call it you know, IoT in a, in, a, in a box, if you will, but it's, it's seven steps, which each have seven major deliverables to them. And we say, this is your journey. You yep. gotta be crystal clear about your strategy design security in from the beginning. And now how many of these things can we help you with? And we, we help them with many of those things, which is why newer customers adopting IoT, we are a great answer to, because we bring that 18 crashing down to, if not one, certainly one or two or three. And right? how does that sales cycle work? Do you have your own people? I know you have 500 employees globally, um, but do you go directly to them? Are you getting um, referrals from your connectivity partners? Like how do, you, yeah. how do they know about you and to get to that point where you're going to make yeah. things easy for you? Well, look, and, and, and first of all, I'll just say it's a constant challenge and a constant thing you're working on. Um, the second thing I'll say is no small part of this, this go public uh, thing was, was attractive because, you know, it improves our positioning and guys like you actually right, might want to introduce me to, to folks that follow you and, and so on and so on. But yes, I mean, look, we're, we're very cognizant of the fact that my total of just less than 100 sales and marketing people are never going to be enough, right? I mean, yeah. even I go to 150 tomorrow, I mean, so, you know, it's like, so what, right? How do I get 5,000 selling for us is a big question. So you need indirect channels. And we think in, t- in terms of four types of uh, sort of indirect channel partners to help us sell. And then, um, yeah, we certainly rely what do those on- those indirect channel partners look like? Like what are the, what type of channels are they? Yeah, so look, so so for us, the uh, the first one that I'll talk about is sort of wholesale uh, customers, right? So mm-hmm. these are guys that solve big networking type problems for other yep. customers, be it a Granite, be it a GTT, you know, think somebody like that. Well, we can be a key part of the wireless parts of their needs to them. And oh, by the way, we enable parent-child and right, all these children. And are they selling the full core 3.0 suite of services or no. are they focused more on the connectivity side? Yeah, so so because 3.0 is so new, it's really yep. this leadership team, the leadership team that I've built around me that you also talked about. But, you know, we're so new in this game that we haven't yet started to package all of this up and put it out in front of our channels. That's a, a key to do here. We just, uh, in fact, we're getting ready to put a press release out maybe in the next week or so where we just launched our first kind of pre-configured solution on the Amazon marketplace. We're just starting to get yep. there. Uh, I think I told you this was the first time you and I chatted that we were on a five-year transformation journey yep. that kind of three years in, we said, oh, let's go do a SPAC, right? <laughs> right. So we got, we got work to do. <laughs> got it. So one of those ways you do it, it seems like is identifying verticals that you do well in. I mean, I would guess in healthcare, that seems to be a really strong one for you. Yeah. And I'm imagining that like 
the the boxes that you need to check in terms of privacy and security and and safety yeah. um, for a customer like that um, are very difficult. So that's kind of a word of mouth. It, it, can you leverage that into other industries, or is it more like okay, you got to sell into a new industrial or wherever it is, and then just kind of take it from there? Yeah. So look, I, we think there's a lot of leverage uh, in that business, and specifically in the acquisition we did in that space. So if you think about just timelines for a second, right? Somewhere in that first half of 2018, so about three years ago, is when our board of directors approved our strategy, our investment plan. We've invested you know, over $50 million over the last three years getting ready for this decade of IoT, right? So that was sort of step one, and part of that was the, the, the platform refresh and so on and so forth. Um, we were also quite keen to expand our capabilities to connectivity solutions analytics to make it easy to be the deployment partner for, uh, and make it easy for our customers to deploy. And so we started out, you know, maybe bootstrapping is the right term or right, you know, shoelaces and chewing gum a little bit. Basically, we wanted to test the strategy before I put significant dollars and significant investment behind it. And it turned out that our customers really liked this notion. So many of them told me, wish you guys had this strategy five years ago when I had to put all these pieces Meaning together. Meaning adding the analytics and all the other stuff on top all these of other services. the connectivity solution. Exactly. The stuff so that can, needs can me to give do us a sense, like, what does analytics mean? Because when I when I think of analytics, I'm saying like, okay, you're yeah. going to try and replace what I don't know, Amazon or Google is going to try and offer to an enterprise customer, or is it something different? Yeah. Can I can I just finish what I was on and come back sure. to the analytics? Because I just want to finish this this thought about yep. healthcare because it's such a deep topic, and I, I just feel like we haven't done justice to it. So let's so 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 we started to go out to the market and test this with customers. And our customers reacted very, very positively, right? And certainly new customers were saying, well, geez, if you can do all of this, then great. Then can you put X of these pieces together, please, and go, go. And suddenly you're talking about $20, $30, $40 a month based on services and connectivity as opposed to a couple of bucks of connectivity, right? And it, it sort of adds up quickly when you do sell these additional managed services and so on. So when, when we saw that was working, we went out and did an acquisition that massively accelerated that part of our transformation. A little company called Integron, sort of Rochester-based, that was about 90% in and of itself healthcare focused, right? And so had all of the things you're talking about, the uh, FDA regs and the ISO certs, and, right? and not just 9001, but ISO 13485, so you can handle medical devices, and then, then, right? And then they bring a couple, you know how it is, they bring a yep. couple of anchor customers, they bring talent. So last thing I'll say on this topic. So, But they also we, bring credibility because it's healthcare and obviously- Exactly, exactly. And, they, and that's the last thing I was going to say on it, is when you can do it in healthcare, you can do it in any industry because right. most other places, the regulatory compliance pressures are not that does, high. Does it work? I mean, it seems like it should work that way. Does it work that way in reality? I mean, I can see how other healthcare guys would be like, all right, we got to use them because they were used in these three yeah. other customers. But do yeah. other industries look into this and say like, well, holy shit, if they can do healthcare, then- yeah we can feel pretty safe about them in our industry. Does it work that way? And like, who's, again, is that your salespeople pushing that narrative or is that now the indirect channels as well doing that? Yeah. So, so we did the acquisition announced it in December of 2019. Okay. 
So we're 14, 15 months into it. And oh, by the way, had a little thing called a pandemic in between. Yep. But remarkably, the company grew, right? And we've done some cross-sell. But I would tell you that the cross-sell is, is largely um, a, a, another one of those big to-dos we're going to go to work on. Gotcha. Our salespeople are going to get better at selling that story and that strategy. And we're going to get better at packaging the services and selling it. But early signs, early signs are that it absolutely does work. Um, we're sort of, you know, fearlessly uh, getting a lease actually that's, I think, two and a half times the size of our current uh, setup and logistics center in Rochester. That's where we think the demand is going, to give you a sense. Got it. So another acquisition that you did, um, hopefully I pronounced this right, is A-Spider, which was yeah. attacking the eSIM market. Yeah. So eSIM, like I envisioned eSIM as something like iPhone based, meaning that, you know, AT&T does not, or Verizon doesn't want eSIM because it's going to make it easier for people to switch to T-Mobile or ultimately Dish. Um, how does eSIM as an opportunity exist or, or how does that apply in the IOT world, if at all? Is this a phone situation? Is this a phone issue or is this, does this change the dynamics and does it help to accelerate the market at all for you in any way in terms of connectivity um, decisions that enterprise make um, yeah. or the analytics that they can get off of off of different devices. Yeah. So look, so we are huge believers in the in the power and the promise of eSIM. And uh, I mean, you know, little core and big Apple, it's really hard to compare, but but we love what Apple's doing when it's been pushing eSIM in the consumer market. Uh, and we think the power is going to be even that much more in IoT, if for no other reason than this. You know, back to back to the numbers. Right, we ended 2020 with 12 billion IoT devices and about 10 billion consumer devices. Right, smartphones, laptops, that sort yep. of stuff. When you get to 2030, that mix is dramatically different. It's like sure. 16 to 75. Right, and and the reason and so 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 just right there that tells you that there's an explosion of potential eSIM devices coming down the chain. Now, why does eSIM apply? Why is it so powerful? Okay, right. So remember that story of the 125 carriers on the washing machines if you're in 50 countries? Well, I solved that problem for you with my CAS service, right? My connectivity as a service, you can now come to one portal, you can provision SIMs no matter where, you can get one bill, you get one number support, you get white glove core treatment, all of that. So I solved that problem, the front end. The back end problem, the supply chain problem is still a problem because there's 125, if there's 125 carriers, there's at least 125 SIMs. Literally, these become SKUs in your manufacturing operation. So, so the current state pre um, ESIM, ESIM. Yeah. is basically inventories of all these like you got forty-four carriers. Got, got it. So it's a much easier provisioning. So, so and and I think I think it's interesting technology as well. So spend another minute on it with your permission. But look, I, I remember the first time I saw the power of this thing with my own eyes was I went into a large lighting company, okay, in, in, yep. in the Netherlands, and walked around their facility, and they talked about the 100 and, I forget, 60 or 70 SKUs they had of just SIM cards, right? I mean, there is just no way. That, that forecast is wrong the day you wrote it. You're probably making all kinds of mistakes, putting wrong SIMs in the wrong countries, and then they don't work. The abrasion, the cost of that, yep. it is just a nightmare. Okay, so the, so the eSIM, the promise of eSIM, and certainly we've been hard at work, you know, investing into our eSIM stack, uh, on the, by the way, on the GSMA, EUICC standard, et cetera, the right way. We're building it the right way to be the global leader in eSIM. By the way, we shipped almost a million 
eSIMs last year of our five plus million SIM shipments globally. So we're, 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 we, and again, that mix will change. It'll become 50-50 and then it'll become mostly eSIM because that's the power. So what, what happens with the eSIM? You get to one SKU or the promise is to get to one SKU, even if I can't get you there today, tomorrow. And, and the reason that happens is because it's a smarter card. It has more slots for more e, for what are called eSIM profiles of carriers. And as long as the carrier ecosystem is treating us as a partner, giving us their eSIM profiles, we can actually over the air, well, download that profile wherever this thing wakes up, connects and says, hey, I'm here. Right. And China so they don't have to worry as much about their own inventory management. So it's is that is that what... So that's that's less of um, I would the way you were first describing. I'm like, okay, great. Esim makes your life easier, but to the end customer, like, does it change the market? But your point is like they can change where they where they're selling their products from if they don't have to worry about how they're deploying it from that. Well, location. that 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 cost and complexity, right? Every time a sim shows up in the Netherlands, but it has a Dutch sim in it, right? And, and that lady calls and says, my washing machine doesn't connect. There's a $200 truck roll and other costs before you even talk about the customer abrasion. All of that goes away because I, I got you one SIM. And quite on the contrary, for making my life easier, it's a massive investment for us. The whole nother part of our tech stack. We, we talk about three technology stacks that we've been investing in and that we will continue to invest in to be the global independent leader. Uh, and and eSIM is is definitely one of those three. So, got it. Um, so just switching gears to back to I think the operators, which is I want to touch, um, because Dish, you know, is is has talked a lot about building this software defined network that's kind of open that allows hopefully cloud providers to, uh, to provide it. Like what what role and and AT and T, like I said, they they made this acquisition or maybe you're investing and yeah. sold. Um, but they still have like large companies like Vodafone and Telefonica are still in this space. Yeah. yeah. Do they, how do you see that kind of playing out over time? Do they, do they maintain this space? Do they buy more Do maybe some sell? Like I wouldn't like, I mean, look, if T-Mobile wanted to um, accelerate itself into the market, they could theoretically buy you guys or, or maybe if Dish wanted to do the same, if they had things going in terms of an open network, they could do, they could also, um, increase their own credibility. So how do you how do you view those kind of carrier relationships going over time? Yeah, so look, so so for, for the first thing I'll say is they are uh, they are very very important partners to us, right? Um, you know, they, they they do a brilliant job of of developing and right these 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 networks themselves and obviously all of the all of the capex they're spending between spectrum and the 5G investments and and uh, you know, we're we're only able to take advantage of because they do it and they they sort of allow us to, right? And so, in return, we bring them a lot of customers and subscribers and data to fill those networks, right? And so, just like I think of channel partners for me, whether they're master agent models or the the wholesale customers I talked about earlier, or indeed systems integrators and consultant firms who who bring us leads, you know, we're no different in the sense. We're a channel to market. We help with a significant set of deployment challenges uh, that are a lot of complementary services to just the pure connectivity that an MNO brings. And so that's why 
we coexist, right? I'm their largest customer on the one hand, uh, and equally, sometimes there's a bit of competitive tension. And are they are they are they doing the core 3.0 type of stuff you're doing, or are they just doing the connectivity side of the equation? Yeah, they're really just in the connectivity, right? And 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 even in the connectivity, it tends to the 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 competitive pressure is 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 minimal, right? Because they would be interested typically in very large customers, right? Uh, typically simpler uh, connectivity footprint, right? I mean, if you if you take a, a U.S. carrier, they're largely going to serve U.S. customers. Uh, and the minute it starts to be international, they might actually partner with us. And so, yep. and so where they specialize, like the connected car example, at those huge volumes, we won't even compete, right? Yep. I, mean, we, we, I mean, so it's a clear concede for us there. Uh, and yet the minute you need multi-carriers, and then add services, add man- IoT managed services, add analytic services. You know, not, not now suddenly your needs are very different, and and, and you're going to find core very attractive. So. so the other just major topic before we get into your your specific business model is, yeah. um, you know, the two G to three G. There's a huge debate right now because. Um, I mean, first of all, a lot of these 3G networks have remained on for longer than anticipated. And now like T-Mobile wants to shut it off to, you know, to mess with Dish. Um, when, when we move to LTE and now 5G, obviously there's some churn uh, connected to that. But how much does the opportunities, like are, have people, have enterprise customers basically delayed in saying like, look, I'm, I'm hearing all this stuff about 2G and 3G shutting down. Maybe I need to wait for 5G versus LTE. Like, how does that kind of conversion, do you think, that mouse go through the snake of the core recurring revenue business? Yeah, yeah and so look, so, so the first thing I'll say is we've been dealing with this issue now for several years. We, uniquely, we are probably one of the most experienced uh, uh, companies in the world, actually, at managing transitions, right? Because the U.S. carriers have been the most disciplined at announcing sunset dates and largely looking by them. Uh, and by the way, that's because they need to redeploy their spectrum for more strategic use. And like you said, when it's 5G, you can get much more through it. You're going you're gonna to want to use your spectrum for that, right? So so we, we sort of lived through the AT&T 2G uh, transition back at the end of 16, uh, and we're living through these transitions now. And the unique thing about these transitions, while there is, of course, some impact, the day the sunset, the, the day the sunset actually happens, the, the network uh, is actually turned off. You know, there'll be some devices that might stay connected all over to them and then sort of die that day. The fact is that most customers two to three years before are starting to change. And as yep. you know, Walt, I mean, the era of the long-term evolution, the LTE, has been going on for many years. So 4G's yep. been around for a while. And so most all of our customers have started to already deploy into LTE land with 4G uh, and are certainly not putting new stuff out on 2G and 3G. And, and by the way, we've, I think we've pretty much passed dates now, at least at the AT&T, Verizon, Timo level, where you can even um, you know, activate new SIMs on 2G, 3G. It's not even an option really anymore, right? So, so, so where, does, where does 5G play a role in that? Because I know there's been some complaints in terms of the battery utilization of 5G in some of these <laughs> earlier phases. Yeah. So is you must be getting questions about 5G. Yeah, we get questions all the time. We get questions from our customers all the time. Some of them are like, should I just wait? And it inevitably comes down to the question of, you know, do you 
do, do you need to get going now, right? Um, or, or, or sort of, or can this just wait? If your digital transformation can wait three years, if you don't want to launch your product for three years, sure, go ahead and wait. You know what I'm saying? And so largely speaking, our advice ends up being, let's get you going, right? Because um, for most use cases, the bandwidth, the latency, and everything that's available with 4G, and certainly with these new networks in the LPWA territory, the low power wide area, which feeds to your battery uh, point, are perfectly good uh, for what, what is needed for IoT, right? And so there is, in most cases, right, I'll, I'll, allow, I'll allow for the exception, but that'll be the exception to the rule. In most cases, we've got what we need. The networks were very, very smart. GSMA was very smart. They said, okay, we're going to create specific IoT-focused technologies. That's where the term NB-IoT, narrowband, uh, comes in, and LTEM or, or CATM uh, is another term you'll use. Th these are where, uh, for, for the low bandwidth use cases, we can now, right, we have IoT-focused networks. And by the way, these networks will live along with 5G LTE for the next couple of decades. So... You know, some people have said that 5G is... Is, is that true, though? Because, I mean, I think I, I would guess yeah. that the concern is when someone sees 2G or 3G shutting down, like if I deploy an LTE solution, are you getting any concerns about are they going to be shutting this down on right. me within some yeah. time frame? Is 4G going to shut down one day right. and then what happens and all that, right? So so, so on that point, so I was making a very important point, which is yep. for most M2M and IoT use cases at lower bandwidth, Smart metering, smart lighting, whatever you whatever your use case might be, we are telling our customers that they can fearlessly deploy into these LPWA technologies of NBA and CATM, and we're helping them with it. By the way, these are newer; they haven't kicked in yet in terms of driving growth, but they will drive in terms of number of devices. This area, LPWA or massive IoT, as some people will call it, is where actually the massive number of devices will be because it's simple, smaller sensors, lights meters, et cetera, that will last for a dozen, 15 years yep. on, on, on low power. Those you can go fearlessly because they're actually sure. new and will coexist with 5G. Okay, so now let me come to your concern of, okay, so people have been deploying on 4G for a while. Should they be concerned about 5G, right? So look, I mean, the first thing I'll tell you is we have not seen anybody talk about a 4G sunset date before the 2030s. Yep. So you're talking 10, perhaps 15 years or longer. Remember, in much of Europe, in much of the world, 2G is going on till the end right. of the decade, right? right. I mean, there are people that look 2029 20, dates out there, right? So, so, so it's a largely exaggerated concern that, oh my God, 5G is coming. And then here's the last thing I'll say about it. The industry has learned from the trauma <laughs> that we caused for our customers from 2G and 3G. And yeah. so the LTE, the long-term evolution, means something. It means more backward compatibility. It yeah. means more seamless transition 4G to 5G and 5G to 6G and so on. It's inevitable we go to 6G and then one day 7G and who knows if that'll be in our lifetime or not. The, the the experience will be much easier, much better. And, and I think we need to, you know, again, just keep learning. Well, I think what's interesting also is that they're using this, what I think is ultimately a Qualcomm technology, um, DSS, in order to put a 5G icon on your phone. Yeah. So I flip that in 2035, 2040, whatever year it is. Yeah. They can use that on the opposite side where they're going to maintain X megahertz of spectrum that they could still use for 5G or 6G. That's and right. it has to have that back. That's well let's, go to the, let's go to the business model. Yeah. I think in your deck, you talked about you know, obviously a recurring revenue business, 90%. So just, just to be clear, like, is there any type of like non-cash revenue? Like when we think of 
like Iridium, for example, had some payload customers that paid them a bunch up front. Like how, how does how do your customers typically pay you? When when you say recurring, are they are they paying you up front or is it, it basically occurring over a period of the life of, of the device? It's actually recurring over the lifetime of the device. We so it's a true cash generating recurring revenue business, right? Yes, yeah, sir. And, and then the contracts that you sign, when you look at that kind of revenue trajectory, you know, I think in one of your slides you said you, there's in 2023, from the contracts signed in 2020, it added $50 million of recurring revenue in that particular year, right? So when we're talking about like visibility on revenue, yeah. already contracted, let alone what you're going to sign up in 2021 and 2022 yeah. to kind of add to that stack of, of revenue growth. Yeah. yeah. Just so I understand that, what's yeah. added. Risk yeah. of churn of that, like is it execution risk or is that kind of $50 million I don't want to say in the bank, but whatever. Like, what what is the risk um, opportunities on, or the risk to the revenue that's been booked in 2020? Yeah. So, so let's first of all just talk about the business model in the sense of how do we actually make money? Because then this becomes easier, right? So we keep it incredible, as simple as we can keep it to start to do business with us, to start to get into IoT. I mean, I cannot say this enough, right? If there is an you know an an enterprise customer that's listening to this. Uh, webcast today or a podcast tomorrow, uh, get going with your IoT, get going with your digital transformation out to the edge, because in a year or two or three, even if you do stumble around a little bit, and hopefully you won't because you work with core, but even if you do stumble around a bit, you will learn so much and you will figure out new ways to do stuff with data and insights that you never had. You've got to get going is message one right now. What do we do to make it easy? We say just no cost at all for the platform and for all of this technology that we have, this moat that we've built. There is no cost to that. You will pay us only with your usage, right? Even if you buy a three SIM or 10 SIM use uh, test case from me, yeah, you might pay me a little bit for the for the hardware itself or the SIM, but but you basically aren't going to pay me anything for all of this power of this model uh, other than the usage once you start to deploy it and grow. So, so now that device is likely going to last some seven years, 10 years, whatever the lifetime of that device is. And by the way, battery life is going longer. Uh, we're getting better at managing power with LPWA. So the, the lifespan is getting, getting up to 10 and 12 and 15 years now, yep. right? But, but I literally get revenue for those seven and 10 years. And it's pretty clear we're going to get that revenue for seven and 10 years because there is no business case, Walt, to go out there with a truck and change out that. Place it. Yeah, what's the point? A month. There, it's 200 bucks versus 20 cents a month of saving. Forget it, right? There's no business case. So you're going, that's that recurring, that's the richness of the recurring revenue model, right? So now you say, okay, so what's the churn? Largely, right? Unless you're- so The churn on that is effectively zero, I would think, because to your point, no one's doing a rip and replace on something right. that's- Right. right. And, 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 and so what we so when we talk about visibility into 50 million dollars in 2023 from 2020 wins, we, what we're doing really is we're adding up all the customers yep. we bought and their ramp forecasts. Right. Yep. And, and then we factor that down a little bit for conservatism reasons. Sure. Some people don't hit their ramps. Some people take longer to get there. Others, by the way, will go faster and be. The right. Your point farm. is that in that 50 million, like, OK, if a million doesn't happen in 2023 because the guy didn't ramp right. fast enough, then it's just going to occur in the first part of 2024 or whatever it is. Right? It, it is. But 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 equally, my point is we've got enough conservatism baked in there that yep. ups 
will will average off for the downs. And so I look, I'll stop short of saying in the bank, also just for public companies. <laughs> right. Yeah, let's not say that. <laughs> yeah. But it's but it's I'm not worried about it, right? It's visibility, right? So right. And that's before you're you travel through 2021. So what let's let's briefly before we go to margins, um, yeah. let's briefly talk about the pandemic. So when I look at that ability to stack that much revenue in future years of recurring revenue. Yeah. Um was was the pandemic uh, a headwind or a tailwind in terms of writing new business in during the year of 2020? Yeah. So look. So um, you know, uh, let me say two or three things, right? So we got approval of our strategy. Yeah. Call it middle of 2018. We started to move, right? So 2020 was you know the second full year of execution of our plan and our transformation. You would like to think that if a leadership team is worth its salt on execution, that by the end of the second year, you should start to see some results. Yeah. And we absolutely saw some results, okay? Our total contract value, our total wins in 2020 was up almost 70%, about 69% over the TCV from 2019. And 2019 was better than 2018. Now, how much of that do I really give to the pandemic? Let's talk about the pandemic impacts slightly differently, right? So, um, in the 10, 12 months of the of the pandemic, there's been 10 or 12 years of acceleration and adoption in industries like connected health. No exaggeration, right? And so we certainly saw an uptick from customers in that sector. Equally, yeah. we saw a slowdown in some sectors and the smaller fleets and stuff, you know, were shut down for months and so on, right? So so we had some some winners and some losers, but largely speaking. Uh, we quite comfortably beat our budget, the resilience of our business model, the visibility point that we were just making, right? Um, you know, all of that sort of really proved out even better than we could have hoped. Got it. So let's then shift to margins. You talk about 57% gross margins, but it feels like, you know, as this business on connectivity shifts from 75 or let's look at it the other way, the, the, the higher margin solutions business goes from 25 to 50 those margins should naturally move up. But what was fascinating to me is like, you know, let's say you're selling LTE versus 2G or 3G, like that's going to be higher price per bit or whatever it is. And you're getting the margin on top of that. But many companies effectively strip that out. So if you looked at that cost of goods of service, goods, cost of goods sold and ser- cost of goods and services sold, <laughs> you stripped out um, the connectivity cost, the, the, the flow through to Iridium, to, you know, to AT&T or whoever it is, like, what would that gross margin do you think look like? Yeah, so um, actually there's there's a couple of, uh, I'll just say sort of maybe even myths to, to explode about our, our business, right? So we, um, you know, we're, you know, on the connectivity side of our business, we're not just a quote um, reseller, right? Um, because we invested, remember I talk about three stacks of technology. Yep. Talk about the core one platform. We've talked about the eSIM stack. We haven't talked enough about the core network stack, the cellular core network, our own core. And by the way, uh, we, we now have multiple of those, uh, including a, a cloud native uh, core network uh, that we can install anywhere if somebody wants a private network, et cetera. But anyway, the point is, because we manage our own IMSI ranges and have the benefit of the economics that come from that, because there are additional charges we're able to charge for various things like visibility into, into revenues, certain SaaS products we've launched like Security Pro, for a whole series of reasons like that, 
I will just tell you that our connectivity uh, margins today are actually gross margins are actually higher than on our oh, wow. business. Our solutions business will eventually be higher. Um, they are largely um, sort of dampened today uh, by the fact that a we're building it out and investing in it significantly, right? And and we right we we want to grow you know at the sort of rates that that we think we can. Uh, and 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 there's a couple of other dynamics going on with some very very large customer contracts that are dampening our our margins there for the next year or two, uh, based on a, a promise of higher volume. But yeah, it's really sort of interesting. We're we're um, we're not but to me, but to me that seems like from for, connectivity. Yeah. But to me, it's and so that's that's good insights in terms of the connectivity margins are even higher than the fifty or seven percent. Still, <laughs> yeah. still, it seems to me like that part of the expense feels like kind of a pass through based on right. what you're doing. So right. if we were to exclude that expense, right? Um, what would the margins oh. look like in terms of yeah. the true revenue? Yeah, of the company. I mean, then you're talking about some, right? I mean, then then you're talking about some like <laughs> close to ninety percent type gross margin business. We would, yeah. I mean, I, I see where you're going with that, but we've traditionally put it booked it as cost of revenue, and I, I don't know that I see that changing anytime real soon. No, I understand, but I think providing clarity, it just it gives yeah. look to to the extent that you search for comparables to a young industry that's that's in growth it's challenging margins are some of the ways you look at that so to, to put margins in those perspective is is probably you know a better way to to think about it so let, let's moving down yeah. you've got obviously good ebitda margins that could be even better depending on you know how the mix goes yeah what about the 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 what's between EBITDA and 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 free cash flow obviously with this transaction you're reducing your debt leverage below two turns. Um, so obviously highly reasonable. Um, what What's the use of, of free cash flow? You can obviously, as a public stock, you can use that for M&A activity um, yeah. rather than cash, depending on, you know, what your, what your interests are. Um, yeah. but, but how do you think about um, like, what are there, cap, is there CapEx? Like what, what are some of the uses of, of capital that, that you see yeah. going forward? Yeah. I mean, look, it's, it, it, there is, of course there is CapEx, but, but, you know, and and it's been a little bit elevated these last couple of years because of the investments in those technology stacks we've not talked about. But we think that'll come back down to call it four percent of revenues. <laughs> By no stretch of the imagination is this a high capex type business. Okay, maybe it's between four and five percent for conservatism reasons. Yep. Um, and so, so yes, there's a bit of capex, but it's a very very um, uh, high free cash flow business. And if we just hit the projections that we've shared with the market, which is 414 million of revenue through 2025, we throw off cumulatively almost $350 million of free cash flow, right? Right. In combination with this for, for, massive- for a company, for a, fun, a company, just to be clear, that's getting yeah. capitalized at, at $10 per share yeah. at a $900 million market cap. So, right. so just right. to put that 300 in, in yeah in put that in perspective and so and i was going right. to say on top of that that from a from a from a use of that cash flow perspective right as you correctly said one of the big reasons to go public uh, you know is is the financial flexibility of writing down what was you know if you counted all of our preferred and all of our senior debt as a yep. private equity gosh it was like almost like nine times of ebitda kind of debt down to a couple of turns, right? And 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 a lot more cash on the balance sheet with that. So you say between that and the free cash flow, 
we can certainly accelerate uh, inorganically beyond the, the kind of the forecast that we're putting out there of 414. So you've done a lot of interesting M&A that's obviously expanded your business to more interesting things, right? Have moved yeah. you to a more diverse revenue stream. Um, yeah. Do you see a decent enough pipeline that would consume the consume that free cash flow? Or, or do you anticipate that um, you know capital returns to shareholders would be on a five-year horizon? No, look, I see a lot of opportunity for M&A. Um, the one thing about having this fragmented ecosystem on the one hand, it creates a lot of complexity for customers that we're solving. On the other hand, it causes or, or creates a lot of opportunity for us to go handpick some of these, right? And so, you know, the way, way we think about acquisitions is, you know, we don't need to do it just, quote unquote, for growth of our customers. You know, we, we will do acquisitions when they are accretive, you know, sort of, you know, fiscally responsible, but equally that they are a huge, you know, strategic fit, right? So culturally, people and talent-wise and capabilities-wise, they're moving us forward on our plans, right? And so to get ready for 5G, to get ready for AIoT, the promise of artificial intelligence and the Internet of Things, to, to further our industries, just like we did one in healthcare, I'd love to do one in all five of our focus sectors. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Are there many integrons out there that, that both diversified your uh, the product set, but also really right. catapulted you into a new industry? Are, are there yeah. companies yeah. like that? Yeah, look, again, I'll stop short of saying many integrons. There are a few integrons out there. We've identified a few. We always have a top 10 list we're working on. Um, and yeah, no, look, I mean, we are um, itching to use this as an accelerator of the, uh, uh, on, the on the return for the, the, the investors, uh, you know, confidence in us. So. And then to think bigger, I mean, obviously, Vodafone, is, as one example, is very dedicated to this uh, area. And we got to give them credit for, for doing a good job in IoT. But a lot of other operators have like many times <laughs> they, they buy into or invest in, in new market opportunities and sure. it doesn't go so well for them, but they have a, a customer set. Do you anticipate those types of opportunities where an operator would be willing to sell off their IOT business and maybe just take a, a minority stake in the company? You know, I, I, I think it's inevitable. Okay. The, 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 the IOT market different from the consumer market, is built for the independent. It's built for an independent value proposition yep. to go multi-country, to be in the, right? I'm Switzerland. I don't, right? I don't care about your device. I don't care about your hardware. I, mean, I care about your hardware, but I'm not pushing anything, right? I want it to work for you. That's when you come to us, our promises will make IoT work for you no matter where you want it to make work, right? And so, so IoT is just, I mean, customers are inherently drawn to that sense of independence and not being tied to, you know, one or two um, or, or 50 individual, you know, um, partners in different countries they do business in. So I think um, I think carriers have to think long and hard about uh, how are they going to create their version of an independent IoT company? Um, and could that be a carve out and a combination with somebody like us? Look, I think it's maybe even likelier than the notion of what you floated earlier, Walt, that they might buy us, right? You know what I'm saying? I mean, I feel like this right. might actually be even slightly more likely outcome, but it. To, but I, I am agreeing with you. It is it, it, it is just sensible thinking in terms of how to serve IoT customers. It just seems, I mean, the only thing I'll push back on is it just seems odd to me that um, to go back to the Amazons and Microsofts of the world that, yeah. I mean, obviously they don't want to get their hands too dirty in terms of involving within connectivity. But at the yeah. end of the day, they're, if their customers are demanding <laughs> some type of solutions for them, yeah. um, 
you know, it, it would seem to be an area of, of interest that they'd want to get someone with some expertise that yeah. is dealing with 44 carriers uh, across the across right. the country or across the world. Excuse me. So. Yeah. No, and, and look, I'm not going to argue with that pushback too much, to be honest, because because you know none of us knows and, and where this goes. I mean, so far, right? We all know how they're right. They they want to get more stuff, more devices, sending more data back to their cloud right. with their storage, right? And and they're making and, and they were count, and they were counting on 20 million devices or 20 billion, right. excuse me. Right. Right. We're we're at 12, so right. as right. we get to 75, it would seem like you know the the customer set. Right. Whether it's whether it's because of 5G or LPWA or whatever the technologies are, that it's going to keep broadening in terms of who needs to have right. connectivity in terms of their devices and right. a diverse, you know, complex connectivity solution. Right. So, right. and how important is that last mile? And it's an evolving, as you say, strategic landscape anyway. So it'll be it'll be fun anyway. This next decade will be a hell of a lot of fun. <laughs> well, this has been great. Um, good luck. Good luck with the SPAC um, getting Thank all that done and looking forward to seeing you as a, as a fully um, public company and um, seeing you report quarters and getting on, on earnings calls and, and asking even more annoying questions. Then. I promise not to kick you off my Zoom call, okay, well... <laughs>